This morning I want to look at one particular prophecy. I'm sure that this is a prophecy that you have read numerous times, and undoubtedly, if you go home this afternoon, you will find this prophecy on one of the Christmas cards you've been given. It's something that we say, and we can almost recite from verbatim, but we really often don't understand the true implications of all that is being said within this one verse. And the reason we don't truly appreciate it for all of its value is because we often don't understand the contextual uh, position or place that it has in the Bible and what was happening at that time for this prophecy to be given that sheds enormous light on the revelation that this one prophecy gives. I think everybody enjoys announcing the either arrival or expected arrival of a new child. Birth announcements. Or we're going to have another little one announcement. Today, the number one place for those announcements to be given is Facebook. And often you will go to Facebook and you'll discover that someone's put up the picture of their ultrasound and I can never see the baby. I gotta be honest with you. I'm like, I'll take your word for it if you really feel that it's there. And then, of course, as time goes on, you get updates and you get pictures and then you get the selfies as, as mom's getting a little bigger and bigger each month as it goes, standing there in front of the, of the mirror in the bathroom with the camera, you know. But I've never seen an announcement on Facebook 700 days before conception of the conception. I've never seen anything on Facebook 700 days before the arrival of the child for the arrival of the child, let alone 700 years. For we find in the book of Isaiah in chapter 7, the birth announcement of Jesus Christ given over 700 years prior to his arrival. And these words ring true in Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, and behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall call his name Emmanuel. The birth announcement. And as you look at Isaiah 7, 8, and 9, and I would encourage that for our time together and for true appreciation of this particular season that we are enjoying, to read all three of them when you have an opportunity to do so. Because after that announcement that a woman would conceive through a miraculous means, a virgin, and she would give birth to a son, and his son shall be called Emmanuel. God is with us. As the prophecy continues to unfold from chapter 7 to chapter 8 to chapter 9, where we find ourselves this morning, as we come to chapter 9, verse 6, we read these all familiar words. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful. Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. How many of you have read those words? 
heard those words or seen those words on a, bir- on a card, a birthday card. If anybody gives you that birthday card, they got a special child coming, trust me. We've read these words over and over again. We hear these words. And of course, they echo and they give us um, understanding that something unique is coming. And again, 700 years later, there in Bethlehem, the fulfillment of this promise would be given. But at that time, at that time, this promise, this prophecy is given when the people need to hear it the most. As you go back into history, you will discover that God's people, the nation of Israel, is divided in two nations at this time. Israel to the north, Judea to the south. And dark times were falling upon these people due to their indifference towards God. Oh, God still played a a role in their life. He, he still had this place in their life, but they weren't truly following him and they certainly didn't love him. And God was trying to get their attention, telling them, listen, you need to turn back to me. You need to come back to me. And they refused to do so. They become even more stubborn in their hearts wanting and just desiring that their prosperity remain and things remain as they are and so forth. They enjoyed the knowledge that they were God's special people, but yet they had no desire for He Himself personally. They turned their back on Him. Oh, they would attend the feasts and they would go through the ceremonial rituals and they, and they would uh, uh, approach him on the times in which he was meant to be approached and honored at the times he was meant to be honored, but the heart wasn't there. And their prosperity began to wane. Difficulties began to arise. And then the northern kingdom of Israel just all in one just moved away from God in totality and began to embrace foreign gods, turning their back on God completely. And soon after that, they fell to the invading Syrian army. And now Judah, Judea was sitting there and they were watching all of this happening before us, before them. And they knew that their most prosperous times were behind them and they were uh, afraid and darkness was uh, unfolding upon them and, and they knew that doom and gloom was arriving and they just did not know how to respond. So the first thing they do is they turn to their king and they say, deliver us from this imposing gloom, this doom that is standing on our doorstep. Deliver us from this moment and at this time. But they found that the monarch at that time was incompetent. He was incapable of doing so, shuddering in fear himself. So they turned to God and they cried out to Jehovah and said, Jehovah, deliver us but they weren't repentive. They didn't understand why this judgment was coming upon them. They just wanted to be spared the consequences of the judgment. They just wanted to be spared the chastening of the judgment. 
And they wanted again to enjoy their prosperity. And knowing full well, God in His infinite wisdom, knowing full well that that prosperity would then just once again lead them into a position of indifference before Him. And at most He would simply be their token God. One to turn to at times of trouble. One to turn to in times of danger. One to turn to in times of fear. But not having a real heart for God. And so by chapter 8, God now warns Israel, or I should say Isaiah, not to be like these people. That even though God appears to be hiding his face at this particular moment, Isaiah, trust me, God says. For I am in control. Trust me, even though you feel that I am distant from you, trust me, he says. And in it, to encourage the people at their lowest point, for the Assyrian army did invade. And the nation of Judea was almost wiped out altogether, save a remnant of people that God spared. It seemed hopeless. So hopeless that at the time when God did not respond to them and they felt that he was hiding his face, they said, well, we then must explore other avenues that we may save ourselves. So they inquired of the dead. And they adopted some pagan practices trying to inquire and trying to provoke a God to intercede on their behalf. And yet God was chastening them, moving them out of their place, a place of apathy, moving them out, them out of that place of complacency, moving them away from that place. He needed to get their attention. And the only way he could do so was by bringing this judgment upon them. This judgment was in the hands of a loving God. He loved his people. He desired his people to thrive. He desired his people to be blessed. He desired his people to be prosperous, but not to the place in which they abandoned him. Now think about all of that that we've just discussed. Because it truly illustrates for us the condition of the human heart which we'll look at more as we continue on. But a promise is given to the people to sustain them in their times of difficulty. As believers in Jesus Christ, we know that we are not exempt from difficulties in life, are we? And it's at those times that God gives us blessed promises throughout His Word to allow us to use them as stepping stones as we walk by faith each and every day. We have a promise in which we can stand upon that will allow us to sustain us that particular day in often the, the wake of impending fear, impending concern and anxiety. And sometimes we would have to be honest with ourselves. In those darkest times of our lives, we often want to say, where is God? For the New Testament, we know that God chastens those in whom he loves, corrects, allows circumstances to be brought within our lives to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ, circumstances that we would like to avoid altogether. Isn't it true? And how often is it that when we find ourselves in certain positions, when God doesn't seem to answer, we run everywhere else for answers. 
We look everywhere else for an answer to the problem in which we are facing. Because God isn't answering or appears not to be answering. God isn't interceding or appears not to be interceding on my behalf. The difficulties are getting worse but not, and not better. Where is God at this moment? And the people then, like today, slipped into this position of anger. The anger was raised and aroused towards anyone who they felt could save them and assist them and help them. And when they let them down, the people are angry. The king, when they find that he was incompetent to deliver them from their problems, they got angry at the king. How many people have turned to the government and said, we are angry because of our circumstances and the place we find ourselves in. Why aren't you fixing it and making it better for us? And then when they don't get what they want from the government, what do they do? They get angry at the government. Or then they'll shake their fist to heaven and say, God, why have you allowed these things to occur? Why have you allowed these things to happen? Thinking that it is his fault. When in actuality, the problem is not with the king. The problem is certainly not with God. The problem is with them. The problem is with us. That's where the problem lies. And so they were looking for a deliverer to spare them from this moment of pain. And Isaiah says, oh, a deliverer is coming and he is so far superior to anything that you would ever imagine. They were waiting for an army of their allies to come and to rescue them from the impending doom of the Assyrian army, but the allies never came. They were looking everywhere else except inward to see that they had moved away from God. Know this, it is never God who moves away from us, it is always us who moves away from God. And when we do so, often he has to bring difficulties into our lives. And here in the United States of America, I see the same parallels in so many today. Blaming the government, blaming God, blaming everyone else for their circumstances when in actuality the problem lies within them. Now that's not every case, but it certainly is most cases. Individuals not taking ownership for the decisions that they have made that have led them to the situation that they find themselves in. Not dealing with the sin that is in their life that has caused them to now reap the consequences that they are currently facing and discovering. Blaming everyone else for their problems. And so to encourage them, and though they were going to go through such difficult times, Isaiah says to them, for unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given. Notice with me in verse 1 of chapter 9 as we read up to verse 6. As the darkness was impending, as you look with me in verse 22 of chapter 8, and they will look to the earth and behold, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrusted into thick darkness. But... There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In her former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. 
But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea and the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy of the harvest. As they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. It will be ultimately done away with. All the darkness, all the distress, all the pain, all the suffering that is due to our own personal sin will one day be dealt with so thoroughly that it will no longer exist. And true joy true happiness. They will be glad in heart. They will be joyful in spirit. And they will realize there will be a relief of that anxiety and that anguish. If you've ever seen the pictures of the United States of America, the day they announced that World War II was over and the number of people that rejoiced. People just started running out to the streets of the major cities here in the United States of America to rejoice of what was happening, that the darkness was behind us. That's what he's saying here. This moment of gloom is temporary, but there will be a day when eternally it will be rectified once and for all, and that will occur not through a great king leader, not through any one individual who is mere human, but a child. He is now bringing them down to the understanding that amongst them a child is going to be born, a son is going to be given, and through him they will be led out of the ultimate darkness in which they are encompassed by. Sin. Let us understand that the suffering of the world, the pain of the world, is a direct result of the sin of man. The sicknesses and all that we contend with is a direct result of the sinfulness of man. God created perfection, man entered in imperfection, and allowed sin then to have its reign. But Christ came to alleviate that reign of sin, to allow us once again to be bringing us into that everlasting position of righteousness before him. Listen to what he says here. There are three things given to us in verse 6. For unto us a child is born. This would have been so foreign. And it would have been a direct, uh, as one commentary said, an insult to the king of the day. What you could not do as an adult king, a child is going to do for his people. A child. And he's going to be a son. And he's going to be from amongst you, the covenant people of Israel. And many scholars see in that duality of child and son the human and the divine nature of the person of Jesus Christ. Because let us remember that Jesus was 100% human and 100% God all at the same time. 
And he's going to be given unto you. And this is the beginning of his ministry. This is how it's going to begin and how it's going to start as a child, leading you out of the ultimate darkness and sparing you from the ultimate judgment if you will follow him. But then he goes on to say, as we continue looking at this particular verse, we see that not only this, but the governments shall be upon his shoulders. This phrase figuratively speaks of one who is adorned with royal robes. This individual will be the king of kings. That he will be the ultimate authority in all things. And the Messiah will be uh, given this place of authority by none other than God himself and will be responsible for all nations going forward. I think we've all heard the numerous candidates for Miss America. And they all say, we want world peace. And people today want to usher in some type of world peace and find it impossible to do so. The impossibility of man is the possibility of God, and God will usher into that time, uh, this world, a complete peace amongst all people of the world at all times. As one wrote, he said, in Isaiah's day, Judah's leaders were incompetent in governing the people, but the Messiah will govern properly in all things. And so he's using this contrast to show us that something greater is coming, something more is about to happen, and it's so far far reaching. Remember, their sight was just on the moment. Deliver us now from this impending pain, impending doom. But God says, I'm going to do it once and for all for everyone through the person of Jesus Christ. Often I think as we as believers go through difficulties and trials, we only look at those difficulties and trials from our perspectives. And it's very painful at that moment. And from our perspective, there seems to be little rhyme or reason for the things we are experiencing and going through as an individual the difficulty that we have at hand. God asks us to see it from His perspective. That that pain and difficulty that I may be experiencing is God allowing these circumstances to continue to form me into the image of Jesus Christ. And therefore I can rejoice, even though I'm not rejoicing in the pain, or even though I'm not rejoicing in the sadness, or I'm not rejoicing in the anxiety or the fear. I know that God is using it to develop me and to help me grow in Him. Just recently, I was listening to a message by Johnny Erickson Tata and her viewpoint of her tragic accident as she dove off that pier into the lake and broke her neck and therefore was left a quadriplegic. And her perspective is that that's what God needed to do to bring about what God wanted to do. It's not that God approved of these things, that God allowed these things to bring about what he desired that he wanted to do. We have to get beyond ourselves if we're truly going to appreciate every moment that we have with God. Let us be honest. When we 
consider the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, if we were one who were standing there before the cross and we were seeing the Romans place Jesus upon that cross, nailing him to that cross, lifting him up between two thieves, surrounded by the mockery of all the people, what would we have thought at that moment? Our perspective would have been that of the disciples. It's all over. This has come to a crashing end. This isn't the man in whom we thought he was, even though he told them numerous times that he would rise again. That's our perspective. That's what we see. But what did God see at that time? He saw that all the sin of the world was being judged on the shoulders of his son, Jesus Christ. And from that point forward, after the third day when Christ rose again, anyone who turned in faith to Christ and cried out in repentance to him could be saved and enter into eternal life. So was it a defeat or a victory at the cross? Our perspectives are often so wrong and yet we take them as gospel truths. And God sees things from a much different perspective altogether, allowing us to see the big picture. Micah wrote, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrata, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from the ancient of days. Or Zechariah wrote in Zechariah 14.9, And the Lord will be king over all the earth, and on that day the Lord will be one, and his name one. There's something happening. There's something coming. And to describe this individual, there are four things listed about him. His name is not given at this point, but we know that a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son, and his son shall be called Emmanuel. But at this point, Isaiah wants us to know the totality of the character of the one who is being given to his people to deliver them from their darkness and gloom. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Exceptional, Distinguished, Marvelous, Miraculous Counselor. People will gladly hear him. Throughout the Gospels, the people reacted to the teaching of Jesus so differently than the teaching of the religious leaders. They said he taught with such great authority. We never heard these things before. Nicodemus, the religious leaders who came to Christ during his earthly ministry, saw in him something that they could never, ever produce. An authority like never before. A counselor. A wonderful counselor. Will we listen to God? Will we say in 2017, I'm finally going to start listening to God. I'm going to read his word. I'm going to believe his word. And I'm going to listen to God going forward because he knows what he is saying and he's always right. His perspective is so much vast, more vast than my personal one. And therefore he sees what I cannot see. And therefore I must trust him. Isaiah, even though my faith, my face may be seen to be hidden from you. Trust me, Isaiah. Will we finally begin to listen to God, our wonderful counselor? 
Oh, when we're in difficulties and we need advice and wisdom, we run around like uh, little chickens with our heads cut off, don't we? The number one place that people go to get advice on any situation that they have in life is where? The internet. The bastion of truth. The bastion of all wisdom. And we expound and we desire and we are in awe of the wisdom of an individual called a blogger. And yet it is our Heavenly Father that has that wisdom that we so desperately need. Why? Because look at this next one, Mighty God. He is going to be God, the supreme ruler, omnipotent in all things, knowing all things. And then they call him the everlasting Father, an expression that confuses many. It confuses many because they relate it to the understanding of the Trinity. Since Jesus Christ occupies the position of Son within the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, how can everlasting Father be a label or a name given unto Him? Well, it speaks of His nature and character. Remember that each component of the Trinity are one and the same, right? But yet they're separate and divided. That being said... The, the kingdom which we have, we have as a father, don't we? Jesus. One who not only has all the wisdom of the world, who is mighty God himself, he has a heart of love towards us as a father does for his child. It now shapes him and forms him into someone that we can appreciate and love because he first loved us. Eternal Father would be another appropriate way to define or to translate this Hebrew because it means that he is from the ancient of days. Before time began, Jesus existed, our everlasting Father. And lastly, he is called the Prince of Peace. For he will at one time usher into this world everlasting peace. When will that be? After his second coming. In a time called the Millennial Kingdom where Jesus rules this earth from Jerusalem and peace for the first time shall be experienced here on this earth as God rules directly from that vantage point. He comes in as a child, a son. And at the end of his ministry, we discover that he is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. I love what one wrote. He says, the dependence upon our own resources and perspectives for guidance can only lead us into further darkness. In 2017, if you want your year to be really different, then don't lean on your own understanding, but acknowledge God in all of your ways. Trust Him. Believe Him. uh, Listen to His Word. Purpose to drown out all of the white noise of this society and just listen to that still, small voice. For that's who was born in the manger that particular day. If you turn with me to the book of Matthew, you will see that Matthew quotes this chapter to say that it has begun. It has not yet been perfectly fulfilled, but it has begun. 
In Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. Now when he heard that John had been arrested and he withdrew into Galilee, leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that when he was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled in the land of Zebulun, in the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan of Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadows of death on them, a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Do we realize that it's begun? This restoration of all things, the deliverance from impending darkness, has now begun in the first arrival of Jesus Christ. And the peace that we are going to all enjoy in that millennial kingdom can be yours today if you would put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Let us remember that Jesus said that I have not yet come to bring peace but a sword and I'm going to divide husband and wife, mother and father and, and uh, so forth. But then he said to his disciples, those who were following him, I give you a peace like none other. I, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. But let your hearts not be troubled, neither let them be afraid. For the believer, we are part of that kingdom of God. And that peace that he is ultimately going to usher in at the end can be ours today in Christ. That's what he's saying here. That that day that the angel herald his birth when the star illuminated his birth when those came to worship him that that day that first day of his existence it all began everything that isaiah said has now begun and in his second coming once and for all he will deal with the sin of the world and the one adversary that we call the devil. And he'll usher us into a time like never before, ultimately leading us into new heavens and new earth and the new Jerusalem where there'll be no more sin, no more death, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more sadness, no more anxiety, no more fear, no more suffering. And that we will be with him for all eternity. That's what this prophecy entails. But encapsulated in this is also the gospel itself. Man will always continuously blame everyone else for his failures, for his faults. From the very beginning of the fall, Adam blamed everyone else. It was the woman that you gave me. It was the serpent who you sent and so forth. But it's not until they will take ownership of themselves before God and realize that this one fact is so key crucial that it is their sin that separates them from God. To take ownership for that. To say, I have sinned against God. And there's no way that I can ever overcome that sin. And as long as I continue in that sin, I continue in darkness. I continue in death. 
It's not until we allow ourselves to be honest with ourselves enough to say, I am a sinful individual before God, and in and of myself, I can do nothing to save myself. It doesn't matter who I consult. It doesn't matter where I go for answers. I'm never going to find a restitution to my ultimate problem, which is sin before God. And it should drive us in humility to do one thing and one thing only, drive us to our knees and say, God, forgive me for my sin. I accept your son, Jesus Christ. And I allow him to cleanse me of all unrighteousness. And the past then becomes the past and it is gone and dealt with and done with. And I become at that moment a new creation in Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate dilemma of this world is the sinful condition, the sinful heart of the individual. And we can make excuses and we can give different labels to our behaviors and try to justify our behaviors with those labels. We can do everything that we want to do. We can try every medication. We can try every counselor. We can try every philosophy. We can try every self-help group. It's not going to change the fact that we're sinful before God and we need a changed heart. We need a clean heart before him. They did not want to take ownership for themselves. They didn't want to do it. They wanted to blame everybody else for their existence. This Christmas, we should stop looking at everyone else and start looking at God. And the revelation of God teaches us one thing, that we are sinful man before a a holy God. And he sent Jesus Christ to do something that we could not do on our own behalf. I leave you with these words. As one commented on all that we've been discussing The specific cause of these individuals' distress and darkness was their personal emptiness. Empty, sensing themselves in darkness. Their natural response was to anger, a diffused rage which vents itself on every object which crosses their path, especially towards those who are deemed in some way to relieve the problems but are unwilling to do so. Hence, they will curse their government and their king and they will lift their hands to heaven and curse their God, not realizing that the issue and the problem lies within themselves. With these words I close. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, as the angel spoke to Mary. And you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, And the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. If we would understand, if we would understand that the wonderful, miraculous counselor has the wisdom that we need and has given it to us in his word to show us exactly who we are and that he is the mighty God, that he can deliver us from our huge problem of sin and death and then ultimately understand it's out of his love for us as a heavenly father for us as he delivers us from us from such things, us from such things, I should say, ultimately knowing that he is the one who is the prince of peace, bringing peace between man and God. And man will never have peace with himself or with others until he first has peace with God. And we can only have that through the person of Jesus Christ.